agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm all, I'm all right this morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm doing okay, too. Uh, and so, you know, uh, before we get going this week. We want to thank all of our supporters on Patreon who make the show possible. And of course, when you're a Patreon supporter, you get our regular show, you get our bonus show, which we're now releasing at the same time. So you can have just gorge on the politics guys every week, if that's your choice and all kinds of different things at various levels of support. And to check that all out, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and if you want that bonus show but you can't uh, you're not in a position where you can afford to support the show financially right now send me an email mike at politicsguys.com and i will get you all set up with that and if a monthly pledge too much of a commitment guys you don't need another commitment in your life you can always do a one-time support through paypal or venmo where we're at politics guys all right, so today we are going to be talking about a bunch of things, including the results of the Cyber Ninjas, uh, I'm going to do this air quote, audit uh, at the uh, uh, COVID, uh, COVID roundup, a bunch of things about COVID as like the Pfizer vaccine booster and uh, President Biden's pledge to, uh, to put out another 500 million doses of vaccine worldwide, uh, some immigration issues, the collapse of Senate policing negotiations, the debt ceiling and the fiscal year 2022 spending bill and the retirement of Ohio Representative Anthony Gonzalez and what this might mean. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, it is. And we're, there's no way we're going to get to all of this in the regular show. So we will move that stuff on to the bonus show. And so we, I, I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm excited about talking about this stuff. But before we do get to this, we just need to take a quick break and we'll be right back and get things going. So before we do get to that first story, that Arizona audit cyber ninja thing, uh, I wanted to take a, a little bit of time and talk about what we're all about here at the politics guys. And I think uh, the reason why I feel like this is particularly important for us to do now is that as listeners know, in the last few weeks, there's been some, I would say, not insignificant blowback concerning remarks Kristen made about COVID vaccines. And we're not going to get into that specific topic or Kristen's views on it again. I think Trey and Ken did a great job of getting into that on last week's show. But what I think we should talk about is the larger issue here. And that is what it means to be, as we say every single week in the, in the intro of the show, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. And this isn't just a Kristen thing either. I mean, Jay, you're, you're regularly attacked for uh, what's, what listeners sometimes call bad faith arguments or mindless, uh, I guess you could say, shilling for what's often called Republican propaganda or, you know, GOP talking which, which points. Which is sort of ironic in, yeah. in a lot of ways, but yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've come into— with the territory. Well, I, yeah. Wear, and it that's, as a, wear it as a badge of honor. 
Yeah, well, you know, I've actually come in for some criticism, too, though. Usually it's because I'm not seen as challenging you or Kristen enough. There was a a comment this last week on the Bipartisan Politics Reddit group that I am allergic to challenging conservative propaganda, and I have been since 2016. And it was was a pretty popular post, got a lot of upvotes, and I thought, wow, have they— and they heard what I've said about the Trump administration and all that, but you know, so guys, you should have you should have known him back when I did uh, back in the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, you were yeah, you were all about conservative propaganda. Oh were, my gosh, uh, yeah, yeah, but 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 you know, Jay, we've talked about cancel culture on the show before, but usually we've talked about it as it relates to other people and not our own hosts and. Our audience is, of course, as you know, Jay, more liberal than conservative. And so you and Kristen end up with. I've gathered that. Yeah, it's a it's a disproportionate share of criticism. And, and one of my concerns is that what I've seen over time is we've we've had some conservative listeners who've just basically backed off and, you know, stopped following, listening to the podcast or commenting. And this is actually something I've seen in my classes where conservative students have come up to me and said, you know, I, I'd be interested in in talking about this, but I just don't feel like I'm in an environment where I can say this without being called a fascist or a racist or something like that. And and this is a, re, you know, this is a real problem. And I thought maybe, maybe since you're the one who tends to get the brunt of these attacks that we can kind of start with, with your thoughts uh, on this and, and what this is and, and how you feel about it. Well, you know, I think there's something uh, that has, has happened. And, and uh, I read an interesting article the other day saying, well, it happened in 2015 at some point that, you know, the, where the switch got flipped. Um, and, I think a lot of folks, uh, particularly younger ones, grew up in a, a, a living in a different world with different assumptions than what we did. And again, it's weird because I don't consider myself old. I suppose many of our listeners may. But <laughs> um, then, you know, in the in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, the academy uh, and was was very much you know, in the, within the liberal establishment, right? Uh, colleges and universities and, and the press were all still uh, very much what you associate with your, you know, the Democratic Party and, and the liberal talk. And when I, when I say liberal in there, I, I what I mean is more what we would call um, progressive now, right? Um, um, and so I, I don't want to get my terms mixed up because sure. that will become important in a minute. Um uh, less than a minute, actually, because the, what the the commitment that these institutions had was still towards the bigger uh, idea of liberalism, uh, as we use that in a a, a political sciencey context, right? Of, of classical liberalism, and and the tenets of of that liberalism, and this is stuff that grew up uh, in the early uh, 18th century, uh, late 17th, early 18th century. And was really sort of the the intellectual framework for for all of of Western civilization that we've had, and and, and you know for the last three four hundred years, and it's sort of you you don't always meet those those goals, right? I mean, it's it's sort of uh, the rule is is more proven in in ex, in its exceptions, um, but the, the the basic tenets of of this are the idea that individuals can speak and think freely um uh, and and that this is a good thing 
uh, and that this disagreement, this uh, discussion back and forth, uh, is is the pathway to one. I mean, if you're thinking in, in bigger philosophical terms, you know, truth, right? That that you you have uh, these these two competing views, and you talk it out, and um, you 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 know get to what what is is really essential, and and what holds up, and what doesn't. Um, in the more uh, prosaic sense, I think the argument has been this gets you to policy outcomes that are, if imperfect, uh, still accepted and have a um, um, legitimacy to them, right? Because, you know, you may not agree with, with the final decision, but you can agree with the process that everybody got, a, that, that there was a fair hearing, there was a, everyone got to got to be heard and uh you know your side wins and maybe got some 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 or maybe got some concessions on the way regardless so you and i i think come from that that background right i mean it's it's sort of we're swimming in that water and have been well you know uh, yeah and, i would just add more than that is uh, i seem to recall back when as you pointed out when back when i was a fire breathing conservative far to the right of you and you know certainly to the right of ronald reagan and, and practically to the right of attila the hun you, you remember that i mean you know yes. oh, yeah. I, I was the guy who suggested burning tires on earth day i mean i was a nut you know but <laughs> but but the point is is it was more kind of like a happy warrior sort of mentality if you will a, a little deranged at times i certainly was but this, what, what frustrates me about what I see currently is this automatic assumption that anyone that disagrees with me must be arguing in bad faith or stupid or, or evil, and not that they just need to be educated or maybe that they just see the world in a different way. And that's what happens all the time because I hear people, when I, when I make this response and talk about the exact same things that you do, people, people agree and they say, yeah, but... But the stuff that Jay or Christian and the other conservatives are saying, these aren't, this isn't true. This is just these are just lies. This is just propaganda. And what's frustrating to me is, sure, people people lie. Right. Or people people speak things that are not true. But you need to think about, well, where is this coming from? Are they in are they intending to deceive? And sometimes they are. But in many cases, they're not. You know, there's a there's a great quote from uh, Richard Feynman, you know, the, the famous physicist he says, yeah, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. And it seems like it's so easy for us to forget that very true principle. And so we just assume, well, you know, our our ideas, in fact, are, we're all, you know, well-intentioned and certainly we couldn't be wrong about anything. And it seems to me what most people want is either they, they either want a partisan echo chamber or they want a tame conservative or a tame liberal, you know, someone that, 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 that puts up kind of token resistance, basically, which is exactly why. He's sort of the straw man type. Yeah, yeah, which is exactly why we started the, the politics guys back in 2015, you know, I remember listening to, to some so-called bipartisan shows and just thinking these are awful. This isn't real debate. This is and, and calling you up and saying, hey, do you want to do this? And you yeah, sure. Let's let's try. Right. I mean, and, what, could, what could possibly go? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was curious this week. I looked to see what the most popular politics podcasts were, at least on Apple podcasts. And it's uh, like it, it's all echo chamber stuff. You know, this alt-right conspiracy theorist guy, uh, someone named Jack 
Hosobiek, I don't know, um, Pod Save America, which is, you know, super progressive, Bannon's War Room, which obviously goes the other way. And if you go down all the top, almost all the top political podcasts, it's clear most people don't want to have their views challenged. And they're just not interested in really seriously considering or trying to understand opposing viewpoints. That's what we're all about. That's what we've always been about. And the fact of the matter is, is that's why we're always going to be a, a niche audience. We're not, we're never going to be a, you know, a top 10 or, or top 50 podcast because most people aren't able to handle with or aren't in a place where they can deal with the sort of thing that we try to do. And, and as you point out, Jay, it's an ideal and we don't always do it. We get some things wrong. Sometimes we could push back more or make better arguments. But, but, you know, and I think in the end, this is why I'm so grateful for the listeners who do support us, because I know that the people who engage in the cancel culture stuff and all that on, on our show even are a, are a small but vocal minority. And that's why I really said really do appreciate the listeners who've been supporting us and keeping us going because there aren't many of us out there, folks, you know, and so the fact that you come back week after week and you appreciate what we try to do and understand that, you know, we're, we're flawed human beings and we appreciate constructive criticism and that, you know, sometimes we're going to. We're going to make arguments, either whether it's me or Jay, that, you know, maybe you're not comfortable with. But the vast majority of, of you have told us time and time again that that's what you really appreciate about the show, that you do that. We do occasionally challenge your views and make you think about things. And that's what we're all about. And I, I just wanted to to take a few minutes at the at the top of this show to remind people of that. And for, for people who are maybe new to the show, let them know, give them sort of some of the history there and. I guess mostly just to thank our listeners for being willing to engage in that because it's because it's hard work and uh, we appreciate you doing that work with us. So there you go. All right. So moving on, uh, I wanted to talk. Uh, well, before we uh, before we actually get to that, I guess we should say that this was a late breaking story. But uh, as you may have heard, the cyber ninjas, uh, so-called cyber ninjas, released the results of their so-called forensic vote audit in uh, Maricopa County, Arizona. Uh, I should say the inexperienced and unqualified cyber ninjas, but that name sort of suggests that, I suppose, you know. But anyway, the results were that actually, surprisingly, I would say, more votes for Biden and fewer votes for Trump. Um, and uh, the report stated that does that, speak better? does that now speak better of the cyber ninjas experience or integrity? Well, you know, and, and I think my 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 main takeaway from this is this means nothing because the, this so-called forensic audit was riddled with problems, as both Republican and Democratic voting experts have been pointing out since this whole fiasco started so it's it's meaningless right but 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 still the fact that that the fact that this highly partisan uh vote audit showed didn't didn't find any fraud you know i i think when they were clearly looking for it it is pretty is pretty telling uh arizona's uh state senate president karen fan who was uh instrumental in authorizing this so-called audit she said you know truth is truth numbers are numbers uh, and, and so there you go. I mean, but but I guess more striking to me were the sort of deranged and I would I'll call them deranged statements that, that President Trump made on his website, which is sort of his now, I guess, his his replacement for Twitter. 
Uh, and there were some fascinating things there, just really disassociated from reality. Uh, one said, massive fraud was found in the Arizona forensic audit, sometimes referred to as frauded. The numbers are election changing. Uh, and then uh, he he mentioned, uh, I mean, it, it just, I won't even go on, but it just seems shocking to me that the president could be, not, it, it isn't shocking. I mean, we shouldn't really be surprised that he's so just, deranged and 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 disconnected from reality you know uh saying that the media is misrepresenting this it's a big win now one thing i agree with he said the audit was a big win for democracy but he says it's a big win for us shows how corrupt the election was it's a bigger scam than even anticipated um and he calls them the winning results of the arizona forensic audit uh i jay i don't even know what to say about this Uh, well what, what I mean, there's lying and then there's just delusional behavior. What do you make of, of those comments? And there were more, but I just kind of highlighted some. Yeah, I, I, I um, you know, I think we we discussed this. My day, if I had to mark a calendar, uh, was probably about January 3rd. Um, and I think I may even said it may have, we may have been at a show that day Uh after the after I read the transcript of the Georgia phone call um, with the Georgia Secretary of State, that I I believe that that Trump really in his own head uh, thinks he won, and the only reason, according to his logic, that he could not have won uh, is there must be fraud somewhere, uh, and and that fraud is evident to him, uh, even though it is is not evident to everyone else, including people who would be predisposed to find it. So I, I, I sort of fall on the uh, deranged side, I think. Uh, I mean, again, it's, it's, you know, we're, what we're doing is, is just, it's pure speculation because we can't get inside uh, his, his head. And unless, unless there's some sort of secret transmission emails uh, from Trump to someone else saying, hey, I'm, I'm just going to totally lie about this. And uh, uh, I know I lost, uh, but I'm, I'm going to keep this alive as an issue. Um, you know, and, and, and look, no, in, yeah. in truth, because there, there, there could be a little bit of both. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's so it's not to say it, it's always one or the other that it's it's uh, deranged uh, and a conscious attempt to deceive. It can be sort of it can be 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 both. And I think maybe that's what's what's going on. But the the problem that, that Trump has and I here's here's the you know, this kind of goes to the earlier discussion we had a, a minute ago that the the beautiful thing about liberalism. And again, this is liberalism in, in the broad sense and this idea of uh you know let's let's everyone have their say and and whole say what you need to do and make your arguments is is that you you do get this stuff hashed out and reach a consensus and the person who keeps making that argument uh despite the consensus it it's it you know it it's a big political drag to them uh it gets harder and harder to say yes there's this this fraud when, you know, first of all, the official results say X. Uh, second, the results of people from, you know, officials within your own party. And I'm thinking right now at George's, you know, Raffsenberger, uh, you know, a, a Republican Secretary mm-hmm. of State uh, certifying results. Uh, then you get to, uh, uh, you know, uh, Vice President Pence, you know, certifying results. And then you get even to this this independent uh, audit, uh, 
pushed by uh, by by partisans to find fraud, and you still can't find it. Uh, that's that's telling. And and look, this is this is the way we we do democracy, and it's kind of crazy back and forth, but. You know, at, at the end of the day, you get to the situation where the facts are what they are, um, and and just frauds and, and conspiracies that are are that massive, uh, it's it's really really difficult to 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 run them, to operate them, uh, without some piece falling apart, without somebody uh, changing their mind, going to the press, um, and and after after this process right you can you can have more faith in the legitimacy to say yeah look this you know biden won the election because everybody's looked at it every which way um and even the people who might not be looking at it honestly say that biden still won the election so yeah except you know i i believe that there are tens of millions of people who will believe as president as former president trump said the fake news media refuses to write the facts, thereby being complicit in the crime of the century. They are so dishonest, but patriots know the truth. Arizona must immediately decertify their 2020 presidential election results. And people are going to hear that. He's, he mentioned he's going to be at a rally in Georgia, which he said will be packed, of course. Uh, and, you know, that's that's the truth that they're because. They have their own truth led by, you know, the most I would say the most dishonest president we've 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 ever had in the history of this country. And my concern is not so much. Well, it's still with Donald Trump because it remains to be seen how much sway he that particular individual is going to have going forward. But to me, the larger uh, ramifications you know, in Texas on Thursday, the secretary of state's office said they're going to start an audit uh, in four of their largest counties. Now, of course, Trump won Texas, but Biden won, I believe, three of these counties. And this came this announcement came just, I think, a few hours after President Trump or former President Trump called for an audit. And we have these other partisan so-called forensic audits in a bunch of states, you know, uh, Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And to me, this is the the worst thing that can happen. And this has always been my larger concern about Donald Trump is that it starts to normalize this anti-democratic, anti-liberal behavior going back to your point. And that to me is is the real threat to democracy. To me, the real threat to democracy from Donald Trump always came from these kind of larger ramifications, though certainly from the man himself. So I, I disagree with you on on that in in that my sense is the more people you have looking at this, uh, the better. And, and I think in Trump's situation, and I think we're already starting to see is sort of his, you know, like spinal tap said, his, his appeal is growing more selective, um, in terms of, you know, the numbers who are showing up at these, these rallies, um, uh, obviously he'll say it's packed, but you know, that's, that's Donald Trump. And I think that's kind of baked into the cake there, right? You, you know what you're, you're dealing with. Um, the other thing is these audits are, um, they're not free. And as, as partisans at some point, um, especially the Texas one, I don't particularly get right. Um, I suppose someone just has some, some money burning a hole in their pocket, uh, that they're going to, to do this to audit results that, uh, literally uh will and and legally could never make a difference right um after you've after you've won the state <laughs> sort of the like well we didn't win it by enough well it, it, you know it, again it doesn't matter um 
and and I also think there's there's a role uh, for for partisanship uh, in in keeping the other side honest, because another core principle of, of liberalism is that you, you don't really trust the government, um, and I think that's that's particularly true of sort of the American version of liberalism. Uh, so I, I think it's 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 uh, a good thing that you have dueling um, folks now. If you're constantly calling into question um, the legitimacy of certain institutions, right? That's what I was going to ask about. Then you don't have the proof, and I get that, right? Um, that's a that's a problem. But at some point, you you get this kind of boy who cried wolf type situation, and I think that's what you're starting to get with with Trump. Of oh, there's fraud here, there's fraud here, um, and and there just there just isn't when no one can can find it. And 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 I've I've made the point again and again and again, and I will always make this point uh was there fraud yeah sure there's always fraud somewhere right yeah um people work really hard (laughs) to to do this uh that said is you know fraud on the level to to turn a presidential election particularly in this type of presidential election now it might have been something different say 2000 when you're down to one state and you got you know things are going to swing 500 votes one way or the other uh, that you could steal a presidential election, but in this case, where you're talking about five states uh, and and tens, hundreds of thousands of votes, uh, the the type of fraud, at least that I'm familiar with, uh, you just you just can't really operate it on that kind of scale. But but to me, the larger issue, and this reminds me of something that uh, Senator Ben Sass said after the 2020 election. He said, you know, it's 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 really convenient essentially to say that well, people are talking about election fraud. So, and, and so we must therefore do things to lock down our elections because people are talking about it. People are concerned when really what's going on, at least in his argument, was that these concerns are being made up out of whole cloth, essentially, as a justification for doing these things that may, that, that uh, many people on the left certainly believe have the effect of uh, tamping down, suppressing, making it less likely for more democratic, large D democratic voters to vote, and that is that's the concern on on the on the left. And, and I think my sense is that if, to the extent that that's going on, you certainly would would be a very strong opponent of that sort of thing. I am a, a, a opponent of that sort of thing, but I'd point out that twenty twenty was was unprecedented in so many ways sure. because of the pandemic. Pandemic, yeah. And, and and as we've talked about when we talked about the Texas bill and the, the Georgia bill, uh, there there are a lot of things that we wouldn't have accepted, uh, procedures we wouldn't have engaged in uh, in any other normal year. And then the the so so I think there's there's reason to be a little skeptical, right? To say, oh, we're doing you know this is the biggest mail in uh, vote ever. Uh, there's there's this fundamental change there, and I, I think it's it's appropriate to be skeptical uh, as to is this a change a good change? Does this change allow for more or less security? Yeah, and I'll go uh, even further. I, I, I think yeah. there could be a good argument that said, look, a lot of the stuff that that happened, you know, drop boxes and the the midnight drive-throughs and, and this kind of stuff, those those are things that did not have sort of the security testing the the. Uh, you know, the well-worn sort of, look, we've been doing absentee ballots for 40 some sure. years now or something, um, uh, the type type safeguards. And, and I think it's not it's not unreasonable to say, um, are these new procedures 
really subject to the safeguards. And, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I look, I, and I understand what you're saying. You can't just make something up and say, uh, listen, people are talking. Um, uh, I hear this is going on. So therefore, uh, I've, you know, you've th- thus called into question the le- election integrity and therefore we need to do the X, Y, and Z. Um, but I, I think in this case, there were people, I mean, look, I was, I was a little concerned about the the gravity, the extent of, of all of a sudden mode, uh, yeah. mail-in voting. And, but, but and I think uh, part especially of the, yeah. about some kind of ID type thing. And so, so, you know, look, things like putting your last for your social to, or, or a driver's license or something like that, the mail-in voting, uh, I, I think those are reasonable, um, I mean, yeah, I think just like so much of our political debate, it's it's portrayed as, you know, extremism on both sides. It's either on it's either Jim Crow 2.0 or it's massive election fraud. And there I mean, that you know, that's both of those things, I think, are just way out of touch with the the reality. But so many partisans see this and so many, I would say, dishonest people in positions of power say, hey, we can use this, you know, to, to gin up some support, to get the base riled up, to boost our fundraising numbers. And, and that's the sort of thing that, that I just find to be, frankly, despicable. Yeah. No, and I'd, I'd agree with you there. And this goes back to we're having all kinds of like like thematic cohesiveness on this show. Yeah, I'm there you really go. Proud thematic of that. Right in front of me. <laughs> um, but no, go, going back to you know one of the reasons we started the show, and one of one of my reasons when you when you you know mentioned that we we're going to throw that out at the beginning. One of the the, the big things that occurred to me, um, and look, one of the reasons that you and I can talk about these things the way we do talk about them is we sort of have a shared understanding of the process and how it works and what's normal and what's not. And we, we have that, that background uh, there for, for reasons that would be a whole other show and whether it's, it's, you know, social media, whether it's, it's a failure of our educational system, whether it's whatever. Um, I think there are a whole lot of folks out there who don't have that same common understanding of Look, here's what the Constitution says, or look, here's how the process works, and and you know, you, and, and and in that in that gap, right, is the invitation to demagoguery. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting, Jay. A lot of this. I'm right now. I'm teaching a course called Democracy in America, where the main textbook is. You could probably guess. Uh, I guess. Yeah, 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 the Tocqueville. There yeah. you go. And this this so lines up with with so many of the things that he uh, that he writes about in the book. And I actually thought one of these days, Jay, at some point, we we would it would be really, I think, a lot of fun and really, I think, a good thing for us to maybe do like a series of kind of book book club shows on democracy yeah. oh, in America. Yeah. I think that would be something we should maybe put on our list because this really, it really speaks to what, what he was saying back in the 1830s really speaks to a lot of these things still today. I think that'd be a, a fun thing and you know, a worthwhile thing for us to do. Absolutely. So. And, 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 you know, something uh, again, and I don't mean to take shots at our audience, um, but <laughs> certainly you know, not turnabout's fair play, right? <laughs> no, I, I, you and I both, both, you know, when you said democracy in America, I immediately knew what you were talking about. And I immediately knew you were talking about Alexis de Tocqueville. And I immediately knew you were talking about the 1830s. And, but not everybody has that, that same thing that they're bringing in. Um, and, and so often, um, again, that's more of a, a funny historical political theory type 
discussion, but it goes to the same thing of, of when we talk about court decisions, right? Uh, uh, and it was something that always frustrates me is, you know, headlines that say court sides with X over, you know, whatever the issue is. Um, and that that bothers me in the sense that, well, the courts just uh, here, you know, it, it's just like they're they're voting on, or they, you know, just yeah, picking the uh-huh, side, yeah. you know, the, when there's really a whole lot more that goes goes into the sort it. of decontextualized, um, ahistorical view of these things that, yeah, I, I totally agree. Right. And and to so when we started this show, that was, you know, I think part of part of my motivation. And because I believe this from a conservative standpoint, the more people know about how government actually works, uh, the, I, I, I think the more the more they're going to, to lean towards towards my side and my solutions. Um, and I think you sort of believe the same. Uh, but and that's that's sort of the, the, the good point there. Right. Is that look, both of us agree that more knowledge about how stuff actually works is better. Um, and and I, that's that's a little bit of a sidetrack, but I think that that goes that goes to the point of, of that's where you get this this demagoguery, whether it's from politicians or whether it's from social media memes. Um, yeah, and knowledge, uh, not only that, but regularly uh, challenging your what you think you know because one of the best ways to, to sort of really understand what you know and to increase your knowledge isn't to engage in some sort of closed loop type of thing but to but to get out there and that 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 back and forth because if you do that in an honest and open way you're inevitably going to find that some things you thought were right are not quite as right as you may be thought. If you if you never change your opinions or your positions on anything, that's a problem with you, not a problem with the world. Unless yeah. you're a perfect yeah. being. So there was, you know? there was, this is another great sort of uh, quote quote that I uh, came across. I was it was I was on a webinar with um, Eugene Volek, uh, okay, who yeah. is the, the Volek conspiracy and, and uh, a law professor at um, USC somewhere in California, somewhere warm and sunny. Uh, but he is. If you ever listened to him or, or read his stuff, listening to him, watching him. He's he's one of these guys who's like just five kinds of brilliant, right? Uh, and I think he got like a he had like a chemical engineering degree from like MIT when he was like sixteen or something before, and then he decided to go to law school. Um, but he pointed out sort of this was a discussion of our our current moment in the law and politics, and uh, something that Oliver Cromwell wrote uh, back in uh, you know whatever sixteen yeah there you go exactly forty five ish right. Um, before before he he launched the civil war and and this was a situation where Cromwell was reaching out to a a cleric uh, who had disagreed with him uh, and he was going getting ready to go go to war with him didn't really want to and Cromwell uh, wrote uh, would you please reconsider I I I beseech you to consider I beseech I want to get this right I beseech you from the bowels of Christ. To consider that you may be mistaken, um, and I think that's just really something. And I, I kind of like live with that almost every day. I mean, maybe I should seek therapy for it. Uh, but, <laughs> but right. I mean, there's there's always that yeah. that question of the what if I'm wrong? Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and I think that's that is a a key to to you know liberalism and and uh, this open discussion and this sort of debate that we have is that. Um, 
Well, the lack of yeah, humility. It's sort of incumbent upon you to feel like, but what if I'm wrong? Yeah, yeah. well, and it goes to me that, you know, I always think of it in terms of intellectual humility. The lack of humility just in general in society and politics is, is striking, uh, especially if you look back to, you know, previous age. You're, you're a big, you know, you certainly are a big uh, fan and you've, you're a student of, of 18th century American history, the colonial period. And, and there was... Uh, in the 18th and even in the 19th century, I think, uh, unnoticeable, at least in some figures, in some quarters, uh, intellectual humility uh, and humility in general was seen as a virtue. But now that's just not really so much of a thing, you know, and exemplified by the, you know, by, uh, I think, uh, Donald J. Trump. And it's really you can't you can't do away with humility as a virtue in society and not expect to have a lot of really negative consequences. And I think we're we're seeing the results of that. So there you go. All right. Well, uh, let's let's move from 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 Cromwell. Yeah. Long story short, Biden won Arizona. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) So before we before we move on, we just need to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk about all things COVID in the last week. Hey Jay. So we have, uh, as usual, some COVID updates we want to get to. So why don't you kind of kick us off with our COVID news for the week? So the general uh, COVID news, uh, and again, when we, we do these updates, um, I typically am ill-prepared to, to hit the, the big, big, uh, big stories like this. Uh, but the United States is reporting uh, more than 2,000 deaths a day um, as of last week, uh, and that's up 10 times the, the death rate from July. So that gives you a sense of the the volume of, of the problem. Um uh, in that context, uh, late Thursday, uh, CDC Director Rochelle Lewinsky uh, overruled uh, its agency's outside um, advisory board uh, and backed uh, a, a expansion of booster shots. Um, the the uh, this would be in consistent with uh, the F. Um, uh, the FDA, FDA's, yeah. FDA's, yeah. FDA's uh, I was going to say FTC, but I'm like, that's not right. The FDA's uh, uh, approval of booster shots for those 65 and older or otherwise uh, at, at risk. Um, and the, the, the idea, this is sort of an interesting sort of debate, right? So there's, there's evidence that uh, basically if you've received one of the Johnson Johnson, uh, Pfizer, Moderna uh, vaccines. That was the numbers seem to show that that is eighty percent effective at keeping you out of the hospital. Um, so but, that's a moving target. Yeah, I mean, yeah, those numbers. Well, it's a moving target. But I think there are a whole lot of folks who 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 would look at this and say, well. Yeah, but I, I want I'm I'm looking for more than just not being hospitalized. Yeah, right, absolutely. <laughs> sort of, um, and and I think that's sort of. Uh, uh, you know, this the COVID booster could could boost the your overall immunity and your your likelihood of, of transmitting it. Um, so I, I, you know, this was Mike. I guess let me let me pitch it to you this way. Um, what what's your thought on on CDC director overruling? Because this goes again to sort of the liberalism kind of stuff. The CDC director, a political appointee overruling uh, the scientific experts. Well, I'll point out that she only partially overruled because the main the main thrust of both the CDC and the FDA were, were 
giving or approving vaccines for people over 65 and with uh, underlying health conditions for younger. Now, the overruling part uh, was about people whose jobs put them at risk for high risk for infection. And so I think certainly that is, uh, you know, that that contradicts what the panel recommended, but there's also the consistency with the FDA because it would be, I think, very problematic or potentially problematic to have one FDA recommendation and a different CDC recommendation. So I think there's a lot to be said for consistency. And secondly, I would say that it's considerably less than what the Biden administration initially hoped for, because back in August, which was a universal booster, yeah, yeah, universal boosters for everyone after eight months. And so it seems to me that you have to weigh a lot of things in in this. And one of them is consistency. And one of them, uh, certainly the main one has to be what does the science suggest? And in terms of erring on the side of, well, both consistency and caution, I think that this you know, this makes sense, uh, you know, and disappointing to some people who would have wanted to get boosters. But I, I it seems to me to be a reasonable, uh, a reasonable approach. Uh, so, yeah, I don't really have any I don't really have any problems with it. It makes sense to me. The only thing I would point out is, you know, there has been some opposition from, for instance, for boosters in general, from like the World Health Organization and other kind of global health organizations who say, you know, there are many poor countries who don't even have enough vaccine for their initial doses. And, you know, you're talking about boosters here. And that's, you know, that's true, right? Uh, if you take a look at the, the world totals, currently 44.1% of the world's population is at at least one dose of COVID. And this is according to our world and data, but only 2.2% of people in low-income countries have received at least one dose. And so there, there's, definitely, there's a huge gap. But I think it's a, it's a fallacious argument to say that, well, this, these doses that would be going to boosters for Americans could be going for boosters to people in, say, you know, Africa or Asia or something, because it's not, that's not really how it works. You know what I'm it's saying? It's not a zero-sum uh, game in terms exactly. of boosters and, and the, the difficulty. So and, and as you alluded to at the, in the original show intro, um, Biden has pledged uh, 500 million doses uh, to low-income countries. Uh, I've also seen there, another number that the, the total they had to get by the end of the year had been like something about 1.1 billion uh, doses out there. And and um, yeah, I want to point out. My sense is, yeah, we can we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And, you know, I want to point out that that makes the U.S. by far the world leader in free vaccine distribution. As of uh, early September, according to UNICEF data, the U.S. had delivered more than three times the vaccine doses of China, which is number two, and then Japan is third, not far behind. And after that, it trails off uh, a whole lot. But it's it's really, it's a difficult thing because even though the U.S. has now pledged, the the initial pledge was 500 million. And now, as you you point out, brings it up to over a billion. As of September 20th, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, total donated vaccine doses received, I believe it's from the U.S., is 141 million. And that's because this is a big, there's a big logistical issue of going from right. pledge right. of this, you know, this, well, we'll donate this, actually receiving the donation. I mean, China has pledged to donate 2 billion vaccines. That's 
you know, almost double what the U.S. has pledged. But to this point, again, as I said, they've only donated like a like like a third of what the U.S. Right. has. So it's easy to so say we're going to do this. This is this is not uh, uh, the the United States being cheap. Yeah, uh, we're saying we're going to prioritize uh, our own citizens over others, which to me would be a legitimate, reasonable argument in any any event, right? But um, it it's yeah in in. You know, you don't have a CVS on every corner in in Chad. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, it's yeah. Um, I mean, no, it, and, and there is not the distribution system that that we have here. There's there's not. Um, yeah, as you say, it's, it's logistical hurdles uh, rather than uh, being tight fisted. Yeah, and 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 not only that, vaccines create special problems because, of course, two of the main ones, the Moderna and the Pfizer, require special, you know, special environmental yeah, conditions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so I think that President Biden and the administration should be applauded for what they are doing, for being the world leader in vaccine donations and, and that pledge. And that's uh, I think you would agree that this is a good thing that the Biden administration is, is doing, pledging to do for the world. I do. I do. No, I, I do agree. And actually, I would even go further and say um, I very much applaud uh, CDC Director Walensky um, taking the stand that she did. Yeah, there you go. And, uh, and, and, and because this go, I mean, this goes to something that that you and I sort of sometimes disagree on is, look, the science is all well and good. Um, but as in this case, you have scientists who can disagree. Um, you can have you can have data that is incomplete or inconclusive. And policymakers have to make a decision on that incomplete or inconclusive data. Uh, and and that's that's what you have policymakers there to do. Uh, so I I think this this was the right call um uh by uh Walensky. um uh it, you know so i i it, but I, I i will i would be remiss uh if i did not point out that uh had this been a trump administration the headline would have read trump appointee overrules scientists yeah well and and to be fair certainly in a lot of the accounts that i've read in the, in the new york times and the washington post that was prominently mentioned. So there there was certainly not ignored in those accounts. But you know, the other part of this, Jay, is that there still are I would say increasing calls for pharmaceutical companies to share their vaccine formulas, particularly Moderna, because Moderna got, I think, a total of two point five billion dollars from Operation Warp Speed to develop and market and and, and, and sell its vaccine. Johnson and Johnson also received funding, I think a billion dollars. Now Pfizer didn't participate. A couple of things I wanted to point out about this. Number one, none of these companies are legally obligated to share their intellectual property because it wasn't part of the Operation Warp Speed agreement. And so there's no legal grounds to force them to do that under that agreement, which is not to say that there's not, you know, a, a humanitarian argument. Secondly, I'd say that President Biden could potentially, uh, there'd be some legal issues, force them to do this under the Defense Production Act, though under that law, companies would have to receive reasonable compensation right. for sharing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's something different saying yeah. we're going to require production uh, and you'll get paid for it versus we're taking your intellectual property. Exactly. And third, I want to point out that Moderna has already agreed to not enforce its COVID-related patents, and they said they were open to licensing their COVID vaccine intellectual property. And, and to me, 
Uh, finally, I'll point out that the World Health Organization is working on uh, a vaccine of their own that kind of uh, replicates to the extent that they can legally do so the Moderna one, which seems to be the most effective long term, and then distributing that technology to any manufacturer that wants it. It seems to me, Jay, that the role for government here is to do things like encouraging Moderna and other pharmaceutical companies to license their technology. And I'm I'm fine. I think it's great that the, the WHO is working on on this sort of thing. But I would be really uncomfortable with a heavier hand approach of saying uh, of invoking the Defense Production Act in that sense. And I, I that that's my take. And I wanted to get your. Yeah, no, I would agree. One, I mean, I think the Defense Production Act, um, you know, I, you know, going back to what it was originally about was, you know, telling steel mills, hey, we need we need you to help us build tanks and, and airplanes, yeah. um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, so th- this this uh, I, I first of all I, I don't see the production is a problem right the uh, like we just talked about a second ago the issue isn't that there isn't enough vaccine being produced um, it's it's that uh, logistically how do we get it to these places and and look I would say in the United States there are really no logistical hurdles I, when I say no logistical hurdles I mean yeah Minimal. maybe you have to drive somewhere to get yeah. it but. But there is there is an opportunity, reasonable opportunity for absolutely everybody in, in the United States to get the vaccine and or a booster, uh, uh, you know, free uh, with with really minimal hassle on, on their own. Um, and, and, and so I think I think it would be there, I think it would be legally quite questionable to invoke the Defense Production Act to to send stuff for medical programs for overseas. But uh, setting that aside, I. I agree with you that stealing intellectual property is absolutely the worst. And let's let's think about this. Um, Moderna and Pfizer and uh, J&J and, and all these other companies that even were unsuccessful, right? Um, they they freaking saved the world here. Um, this is this is a, a really big deal. And they did so at great expense and great risk to themselves, their employees. Um, you know, doing that. And the the concern that I always have as a, a free market guy is when the next thing comes along, uh, you know, if you if you do strip them of all their other rights, you do say, OK, yes, you're going to produce this. You're going to produce this for free. Uh, you know, are, are they going to be so willing to to do anything the next time around? You know, and I thought about I, that I, as I well. Would, that, right? but I, mean, I, I, and I, I get there's there's always uh, the. The socialist uh, type thing, and I'm not calling you a socialist. Not call, I'm, I'm using that in a more general term of that everyone will work for the public good, but that just isn't how it works in the real sure. world. You know, I, I thought about that argument as well, but I, and I would say that given given the stakes, when when you know the when millions of lives, when billions of lives are literally at stake, that I don't think that the, the big pharma would say, oh, sorry, we, we're not going to help out because, because I mean, they just would, that would not be allowed to happen. But the larger, I mean, 
the the point about just in general doing doing this uh, is it would make it more difficult. There would be maybe a little more resistance the next time around. It would be harder to get them to get started. There need to be more assurances made and that sort of right. thing. And so you're not going to steal intellectual property, are you? Yeah, no, that, no, no, no. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> and that would that would delay things, and those delays literally cost life. So yeah, that that would be a that would be a concern. The other point I would make is I do think actually it is a production problem, and that's because uh, it you know it would be better if every country had a or a lot of countries had their own production facilities where it could be easily create produced and shipped and shipped short distances. But the problem is again we're not talking about widgets here. This is a highly sophisticated advanced thing, and even in our country, Johnson and Johnson and and I believe other companies had issues with. Bad batches and things like this. So it's not like you can just set this up like you're like you're making you know nuts or bolts or something like that. And that's that's the real problem is in terms of getting this out. So even if the, the, to me to me that argues against not not to interrupt, but that argues against again the, the taking of any intellectual property because you could you can have the secret formula right um, it, it, but if you don't have the factory to make it it doesn't exactly, matter exactly and so i think the bigger issue going forward and and this i'm sure is something that the world health organization is is working on is making sure that there that there's better infrastructure in place so when the next pandemic hits and there will be a next pandemic and i'm betting it's not going to be another 100 years like it has been you know this time since the last one that we're we're in a better position to make sure that these poorest countries are don't lag behind so much. And, you know, that, that's always going to be difficult, certainly, but uh, let, let's hope that that works out that way. All right. Uh, I think we have time for one more story here. Before we do, let's just take a quick break and then we will talk a little bit about immigration. All right, Jay. So there was a lot of immigration news this week, wasn't there? Uh, there, there certainly was. Uh, on the first piece uh, we're going to talk about, uh, uh, Senate parliamentarian. Elizabeth McDonough ruled that the Democrats plan to include uh, pathways to citizenship uh, for uh, essentially it would be DACA folks, uh, certain farm workers, essential uh, workers, other um, uh, immigrants could not be included in the big $3.5 trillion spending package. Uh, she said that a policy change that uh, substantially outweighs uh, the budgetary impact of that change and that change in the law uh, to clear the way for this policy change uh, is tremendous and enduring policy change that that dwarfs uh, the budget impact. Um, so what that means is uh, the immigration pieces as they are as they were were proposed at least currently uh cannot be passed by a simple majority um or a 50 vote plus uh vice president kamala harris uh in the senate um so they're they're either essentially out or the democrats have to come up with some new way to maybe try to massage this to to make it more budgetary and less policy uh i don't think there's a way to do that really uh but but they they may try so uh, my my view on this is that the Senate parliamentarian got it right. Uh, this is not a budget piece; it's it's a, a policy change, and I I would think that's that's a not a not a hard not a hard call to to make. Um, but what are your thoughts? I agree one hundred percent. You know, I I 
It seemed to me from the beginning that this was not that immigration reform did not belong in the reconciliation process. And and these calls to fire the Senate parliamentarian are just it, is eye-rollingly ridiculous. I get, hey, I am for, I, I like the underlying policy ideas, but the, the process is the process. And subverting the process, arguing that the parliamentarian made the wrong call, this this goes to, well, you said we had this kind of thematic unity in the show. Again, you know, uh, just if you don't like the outcome, saying that the, the process is rigged, no, I, I, I think it's a bad process. You know, I think the reconciliation rule is ridiculous. And the very fact that it exists points to, you know, maybe larger issues with the Senate. But the the the, the solution isn't rules to and rules. Yeah, the solution then is to change <laughs> those rules, not to twist them out of all, all all reasonable meaning. And so hey, if you want to revise the Senate's rules to change the filibuster, that that's a reasonable conversation. Uh or modify this filibuster in certain ways. But arguing that, well, we have this reconciliation rule and let's pretend this fits under it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't, and this was the right call. And and yeah, does that does that probably kill immigration reform? It absolutely does, and I think that's just heartbreaking. But you know, the rule needs to be changed, not to be taken out of all proportions to what it means. So yeah, we totally agree on that. Yeah, well, good. Uh, so the the next uh, big immigration uh, piece, and I have my music queued up, and now I can't find it. Um, was. Uh, uh, what what uh, happened down in uh, Del Rio, Texas, yeah. where there was a over the last two weeks, there's been a surge of 30,000 uh, mostly Haitian uh, immigrants. Um, uh, so uh, there are a couple of things have happened first last week. And, and to me, that this is sort of separate from the immigration question. But uh, uh, there were media reports of, of uh, U.S. Border Patrol agents whipping um, migrants. Uh, with whips from from horseback, uh, that I think we can agree is 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 false, uh, uh, based on on the photos, based on the testimony, based on what um, uh, Secretary of, of Homeland Security Mayorkas uh, even even said. Uh, these folks, the Border Patrol horseback, had long reins that they they twirl to as there as they explain it uh, to keep people back away from the horses to prevent injury. Uh, that did not stop uh, President Biden and uh, spokesperson Jen Psaki from uh, sort of exploiting this uh, with Biden saying those people will pay. Uh, those people, meaning uh, the United States Border Patrol, not the the uh, folks illegally entering the country. Um, so, Mike, what are your, your first your thoughts on on that? Um, and, and what what message does does that send? Well, on that, I would say that even though Border Patrol agents were not whipping Haitian uh, uh, Haitian citizens, Haitian immigrants or potential immigrants, it, it seems to me that certainly reasonable questions can be raised based on the, the video and images that, that have been you know around that the way in which they were engaging or charging, what have you, these these folks is is certainly disturbing it, it was it looked disturbing to me and it's reasonable to say that if anyone treated uh these folks inhumanely that they should pay and i think you would agree 
with that. So I, I think it was yeah, right. No, I, I do. It is is uh, President Biden sort of prejudging the outcome when he says those people will pay. I don't think so. I think that, that can be I think that can be taken if out. I, of. If I am uh, if I am in the dock for that and they say, well, I said, what exactly is the process for this? And well, the president said those people, meaning you, will pay. No, no. Uh, let's go back. My sense of getting fair hearing is it's, it's not going to be great. Well, again, you know, and this goes back to, well, the Trump administration, right? I mean, and just politicians in general, they say they, they make these broad statements, right? And I'm not saying, you know, take take Biden seriously, but don't take him literally, you know, like we've talked about with, with former President Trump. But, OK, it's a little bit of, you know. I, a political rhetoric, certainly, but it, there is, it is not going to be the case. I feel confident it's not going to be the case that any of these Border Patrol agents who did, did nothing wrong will end up suffering consequences. Now, if I'm wrong about that, you will tell me that I'm wrong about that when it happens. And, I will. But, yeah. but I don't I, suspended. To me, point, this is so. Tempest in a Teapot thing. The biggest issue. The bigger issue is the larger concern about what's going on with the Haitian uh, immigrants. For instance, we had the U.S. special envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, resigning in his resignation letter saying, I will not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees and illegal immigrants to Haiti, a country where— Back to the country, yeah. back to the country that he's in. Yeah, a country where American <laughs> officials are confined to secure compounds because of the dangers posed by armed gangs and control of daily life. So let's be clear here. Things are off. Things even before everything, even before this last year, things have been awful in Haiti. It's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Things, they had, things they, have never been good in Haiti, no, ever. They had an earthquake in August. There was a, a tropical, right, a tropical storm. These powerful gangs that are controlling so much in life, lack of food and water, COVID. It's a, it's a disaster. Literally, it's a disaster. And so it's absolutely the case where how can your heart not break at the thought of sending thousands of people back into those conditions and the the grounds under which let's be clear the grounds under which the Biden administration is doing this it's based on the Trump administration uh public health immigration rule title 42 that allows the that allows the administration to send people back who are who are asking for asylum without a hearing because of public health concerns. And so that's what's going right. on. And right. Yeah. And yes, yeah, so we should be clear about this. These deportations are not uh, immigration deportations in the traditional sense. Right. Right. And, yeah. and they're and so to me, I, I have a I have a huge problem with this. I, I agree uh, to, to a certain extent with uh, with uh, Daniel Foote. And I don't. It's frustrating because it seems to me there are a couple of things going on here, I guess. Uh, one thing is that we do not currently have the infrastructure and the resources to, to house and quarantine all of the people who want to get in under these asylum claims. It seems to me that that's, that's likely, maybe not certainly, but likely the case. Uh, and so then the question is, well, what do we do? Well, I could see it. Certainly it's an issue given the pandemic that you just can't, you know, let people, thousands of people into the country, not having not having any idea about their about their covid status, given the fact that they're almost certainly not vaccinated. Right. We we know that almost for a certainty. And, you know, what uh, White House uh, what the White House uh, has said is that, well, you know, we assess these people. 
for symptoms and uh, we the intention for them is to be quarantined and they're not intending to stay here for any lengthy period of time. And that's when I heard that, I thought, this is just this is just double speak. Yeah, obviously. The, the sense that, that these folks are just vacationing. Yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it also seems to me difficult for me to believe that given all of the logistical capabilities of the United States government, that we couldn't set up some sort of humane, temporary quarantine testing uh, vaccine system at the border for this surge of people. I, I, maybe we can't, but I just it's, I find it very, very difficult to believe that that's the case. And so I just find this to be an unacceptable, uh, an unacceptable decision by the Biden administration. Well, let's, I want to put things in perspective, though, when we're talking about the deportations, which I, I do not find to be unacceptable. Um, at this point, uh, last numbers I said, of the 30,000 uh, Haitians that have uh, arrived more or less since the middle of September, 2,000 have been deported back to Haiti. Um, so that that leaves a, a pretty big number that, that have not been uh, deported. And again, from the the numbers I I read, uh, <clears throat> something on the the, the level of uh, twelve hundred or twelve thousand five hundred uh, have been essentially released into the United States, um, pending uh, at some point a, an asylum hearing, I suppose. Uh, another approximately eight thousand have returned to Mexico, um, with with likely the intention to try again. And there are another 6,000 or so that are, are um, uh, sort of in process, I guess, right, that are being being held in a requested asylum. And I'm not exactly clear um, with that. And also, it's it's not at all clear that those numbers really add up to, to 30,000. But um, that that said, I, you know, I, I guess that like like they say at the bar, Mike, I mean, you, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Um, what you know how and, and to me I, I guess if sending someone back to haiti i'm uh, haiti is absolutely a hellhole but uh what what's the what's the alternative uh well, that's know, my point is going and, you know you said you look if we could we could have uh some sort of um uh humane uh you know quarantine facility uh that also you know the, in other words for that is cages uh, right um Except it doesn't have uh, to be because, cages. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, there's there's a there's a, something between putting people in cages and just sort right. of letting them roam about the country freely. So, let, but here's this goes back to my original question then of what message does it send in incentives? And when President Biden says, "Well, look, the border is closed. Don't come here." But if you do, we'll put you up someplace pretty nice. And I get that. Uh, we'll yeah. Get medical yeah. treatment. We'll get you, you know, we'll, uh, you know, we, we're going to fire those mean border patrol people who tried to prevent you from, from crossing. Uh, we're going to, we're going to lower the hammer on those guys. Let me tell you. And uh, we'll set you up someplace nice. Uh, and if I'm Haitian and I say, well, at this point, uh, over 12,000 of the folks uh, who, who attempted this crossing, illegal crossing are now in the United States. Uh, free to go about do whatever they want, uh, pending some immigration hearing probably next year. Uh, I'd say, oh, my odds are pretty good. 
I get that. Right? But, and but, it, see, it seems to me, though, the argument boils down to then, well, if we if we make it clear to people who are suffering greatly that we will take care of them in a humane way, well, then more people who are suffering greatly will want us to take care of them in a humane way. And my initial thought to that is yes. Yes, to the limit of our capabilities, absolutely, we should do that. And it doesn't seem to me that we're anywhere near the limit of what we could do if we devoted the proper level of resources to uh, to the situation at the border. I mean, God knows we need more in terms of facilities. God knows we need more in terms of personnel. Our immigration court system is woefully understaffed and under-resourced. And so the answer to me is this is not like it's a new problem, right? This is this is an ongoing thing. So the answer to me is is not to take the Trumpian position of saying, you know what, we're just going to crack down and make it clear that you're not getting through and that will that will staunch the flow. And I think there's a logic to that. Absolutely. The answer to me is just the opposite. To beef up our resources enormously so we can help more of the neediest of, of the needy. And that's that's the direction I'd like to see things go in. So I, I I guess my only response to that is is I, I think it's it's sort of uh, naive, right? That, that because what's going to keep happening is what has happened, right? When um, people view the U.S. as having an open border, uh, and but, but no, I said, let me day, let me let me stop let me stop you right process, there, right? And say, look, look, okay, we'll give you an immigration hearing. We'll give you a quick immigration hearing. Uh, Still, a lot of those uh, people who have who fled here from Haiti, in a lot of cases, they didn't come directly from Haiti. They had been in a, a third country uh, in in Central America before that. Uh, you know what what do you what do you do? You say, look, uh, no, you don't qualify for asylum, but yeah, your country's really crummy. So uh, here you go. And and at what point is that? de facto a, a borderless situation. Well, see, and I think there's a distinction to be made there because, uh, you know, we have to look at what the asylum rules, you know, say, certainly, and and make a timely determination as to whether people qualify for asylum under those rules. And reasonable people, I think, can have a debate about how generous our asylum rules should be. And to my to my mind, we should... First off, make sure we have the capability to deal with all the requests that we have under under the the current rules. And I I don't think you disagree that we don't really have that capability. No, we don't. Um, and so look, look, we're we're stretched thin, and we're spending. You know, his his federal spending gone up or down on this? It's gone up. I mean, we're debating a three point five trillion more in spending. Uh, to say we have. You know, we have a lot of resources, but those resources are not unlimited. I see it by I think if we have the resources, I mean, I would say that, you know, if that cut taxes by a one point five trillion over 10 years, we can we can certainly do this. This is not in the grand scheme of things. This is not a budget breaking sort of thing. This is the right thing but, to do. It, it would not. But it will. But it will be over time. I don't think so. No, I, I, I disagree. Because, because I disagree. The more you encourage. um the, the, you know, again, do you think do you think Haiti is going to get better? Well, I mean, anytime? I think I think certainly you think a lot of these countries, these countries in the, uh, the, the you know, Central American Triangle are going to get better anytime soon. 
Well, it might not um, be anytime soon, and I, that's why I think that we have a larger obligation to try to, to try to help, you know, to the extent that we can. Now, Haiti will get better, uh, not not maybe a whole lot better, not very quickly. It was hit with a lot of things all at once, and that's that's caused some problems. But you know, in terms of what what's our Louis, capacity, Louis, so let me, I'm, I'm going to jump in one more thing. This is this is something that's always fascinated me about Haiti. Right. It's it's a divided island. Half of it is is Haiti and the other half is the Dominican Republic. Uh, yet we do not see a surge of immigrants from the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Government matters. Uh, the, the, the Dominican Republic uh, may be um, someplace we would consider third world. It is is probably does not have the amenities uh, that we have here. But I don't think anyone would call the Dominican Republic a failed state like you would Haiti. So what's what at what point does does our obligation to to provide shelter from every failed state uh, in in the world? Uh, it, you know, it, it, at some point you say, OK, well, we, we could get rid of the tax cuts. But, um, you know, at, at some point, I, I don't think it's it's callous or. Uh, no, I agree uh, with or, you that we can't for me. Do... Ask, why? Why should I pay more taxes for these Haitians who haven't been able to get their act together? Since the 1700s, oh, it's not these um, Haitians. The people living it's, just across yeah. the other side of the island in the Dominican Republic have. Yeah, well, it's it's not obviously these individual Haitians. You're not saying that you know you're, no, you're no, not. No, I'm saying the Haitian government. Yeah, I want to make the course that, of, Yeah, and, and yeah. so I agree with but you. The actual Haitians are, are are I imagine perfectly nice people, uh, and they're responding in a completely rational way to the the situation and incentives that have been placed before them. Yeah. I would agree with you that we cannot do everything for everyone. And that's, that's, what, that's what you're saying. And certainly that's true. But I also think we can do a lot more than what we're currently doing. And so that's, that's kind of where I land. And also I want to point out that you know, this, this brings into kind of a third point about immigration this week. President Biden announced uh, or raising the refugee limit to 62,500, which is considerably more than the Trump Double administration's yeah. 15,000, but well below his campaign promise of 125,000. But if you take a look, and, and I know you've seen this data, at the uh, refugee uh, limit over time, back in the 80s, in the early 80s, it was well over 200,000. So we used to admit a lot more refugees than we did. And that's my point, is we can do a lot more than we're doing right now. You're right that we can't do everything for everyone and there have to be limits. But the limits that we've set to this point are far lower than what we're capable of doing. And that's my that's my point on that. Yeah. So I have a, a couple a, a couple of ways to hit. One back to the Haitians and <clears throat> why why not immigrate to the Dominican Republic? You know, and I, I don't I'll have just, an answer. I'll just, leave, I'll just leave that out there, right? I mean, my my sense is because the Dominican Republic is probably harder to get into than the United States. Uh, you could also make the argument, well, it doesn't offer the uh, all the opportunities the United States does, and that'd be a fair argument. Um, but I want to, I want to, you know, this is and this is a sort of a gratuitous, um, uh, you know, hitting somebody out once they've gone out of bounds, but. I, I think so much of our immigration situation also flies in the face of the the woke narrative that this is a, a systemically racist country. How so? Right, because because again, the apparently folks from Haiti are choosing to immigrate to the United States 
uh, as opposed to somewhere in the Dominican Republic or somewhere else, that they oddly have not gotten the memo of, of what a horrible racist society uh, we are, and they are willing to risk life and limb uh, with with Mexican cartel human traffickers uh, across uh, some of these. I mean, if, if you, you read the, the trip that these folks have taken through these rainforests, that's, you know, the most dangerous places in the world from in terms of criminal operators, in terms of, uh, you know, venomous snakes and, and you know, all, all sorts of, of, of horrible things. Um to get here. I just, I just think that's, I think that's, that's a stretch. I mean, I don't think, I don't think if, if we had, if we had AOC stay on the show, that would be an interesting show. But yeah, I, I don't think that she would say, oh yes, the United States is worse than, than Haiti, uh, you know, for, for people just in their general life. So for people, well, for, for, no, but if the idea is, is systemic racism, which that's all the rage these days, right? Um, and it's it's so bad it's baked into our constitution and and so forth. Well, I think you can uh, believe that these as, people as, these people didn't get these people obviously didn't get the memo. No, no, I think could. that's a, I think that's a bad argument because I think you can believe that, and to a certain extent, I believe that without without well, you can believe that and also believe that the United States is a far better place to be than so many other countries in the world. And it's completely understandable why people from across the Western hemisphere, across the world would want to come to the United States. So I don't think those okay. two things there, are in conflict. That's, that's yeah, that was the, that was the, uh, the concession I was going for. Um, my last point, and now, now I'm forgetting it. Um, happens to me all the time. Oh, I just talk until something comes to mind. <laughs> I had three things I was going to say, uh, and, and you sidetracked me on two. Um, but well, it'll it'll come to me. Uh, it'll be part of the bonus show, folks. So in yeah. fact, we're running kind of long today. So why why don't we why don't we end it there on that cliffhanger? And then yes. in in the interim, Jay and I will take a break, and he will re recall what this thing is. Certainly, but also really good. But we're also going to be talking about uh, well, the Senate policing negotiations, the collapse of those, that debt ceiling concern, and the, the spending bill. Because, of course, the end of the fiscal year is coming up. And then uh, something that's sort of close to home, but also national, the uh, Representative Anthony Gonzalez announces his retirement. Of course, he was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach President Trump. We'll talk about that in larger implications. I've, I've met him a bunch of times, Mike. There you go. So I, I, I've yeah. seen him on various Saturdays and Sundays, of course, playing football, So, but I've never actually met him. So anyway, that uh, that will be all part of the bonus show, which should be available to you, well, by the time you hear this. And if you uh, are not a supporter and you'd like to become one, again, it's patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you'd like to get that bonus show but can't afford to support, support us financially right now, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. Also, if you haven't already done so, it would really help us out if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings, leave reviews on the podcast app of your choice, and especially sharing episodes on social media. Uh, that is a big deal. It really helps us out a lot. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, mail at politicsguys.com is our address. And also we're on Facebook and Twitter. You will find links to those in our show notes. A special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you join us.